Welcome to another exciting episode of Mission Compliance, Unleashing Growth Potential for Defense Contractors. This week, we're diving into the world of defense ethics and corporate social responsibility. We're joined once again by Mike Frieder, CEO of On-Call Compliance Solutions, and we'll be exploring the critical role of defense contractors and business owners in upholding ethical conduct, earning public trust, and making meaningful contributions to society. Get ready to gain insights, challenge your perspectives, and explore the intersection of defense and responsibility. Together, let's navigate the complex landscape of ethics and the social impact of the defense industry. So last time we discussed the relationship between defense contractors and their subcontractors. Now let's talk about the ethical and social responsibilities of those contractors. So Mike, what what role does corporate social responsibility play in in, in the defense industry? So um you know it's it's an interesting uh, it, it's an interesting topic because you know I think one of the big challenges that we have in this country is that up until now DFARS, you know, particularly DFARS 7012 and NIST SP-81071 have all been self-attestation. In other words, uh, it's a compliance standard that exists. And the way that it works is you submit either by questionnaire or via you know, an SPRS score that you're putting into a uh, sort of a public system, right? The, the SPRS system is the Supplier Performance Risk Management System for the DOD you're essentially able to put that information in yourself. And so I think that, you know, when it comes to morals and ethics, one challenge that we have is the lack of knowledge about the laws and the lack of sort of willingness to understand how important those laws are and have our defense contractors and defense supply chain go along with those. So I'll give you a, a, a number, and it's a little bit dated here, but back in 2020, it was believed that only 1% of defense contractors in the defense supply chain was actually complying with DFAR 7012 and NIST SB-800-171. Really, it's a shocking number because those laws came out at the very beginning of 2017. So three years on, very, very few people uh, have really gotten compliant with this. Now, these days, there are a lot more people who are getting compliant with it because what's happened is the government has basically put its finger on the large primes, people like Lockheed, Raytheon, you know, BAE Systems, people like that. And then also with their direct contracts and said, hey, look, you've got to get it verified in writing that, uh, you know, people are complying with this stuff. So, you know, there has been a lot more activity around these standards. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that's a good thing from a moral and ethical perspective that people are at least getting educated. Are people still going along with it? Well, you know, that's an interesting mixed bag reality. Um, I would personally estimate that we are still at a point where less than 10% of defense contractors really even have a good quality system security plan, plan of actual milestones, or have actually fulfilled all their obligations. Um, but, you know, that number is an undocumented number. It's not a number that you know, there's really hard evidence around. Um, but, you know, what I would say is this, I think from a moral and ethical perspective, being compliant is an absolute moral requirement if you're going to be in the in the defense world, right? So if you're going to take dollars that are originating out of the DOD, right, whether you're a, a prime contractor or a subcontractor, I think it's your moral obligation to follow the law 
and to uh, you know implement these securities and safeguards that are in these compliance standards. And, and look, yes, I understand it costs money, um, but there are things like called cost reimbursement contracts. You can raise your rates and prices. Uh, and I, I know there's debate over the idea of a firm fixed price contract. Well, you know what? The time goes and comes and those things can be renegotiated uh, in time intervals. So I, I think ultimately six years on in 2023, there's a, there's a huge moral obligation to follow these laws. And of course, the why of, of why is it so important is that, you know, these the number one threat to national security is cyber attack. It's really simple. Um, you know, so the requirement for you to protect yourself against what is a known threat, I think, is just common sense. And so. You know, I think from a from a moral and an ethical perspective, if you're if you're a defense contractor and you know about these laws, um, you know, or even if you don't, I mean, you need to be educated about the business sector that you're in. Right. Defense is not just private sector. Then I do think that there's an immense need for you to remember that there are consequences. But more importantly than consequences, I think that there is an obligation to do the right thing. If you're going to get involved in supporting our country. Supporting our country includes your information security requirements being met. Um, and so I, th I think that's a pretty relevant way to sort of sum that up. So great question. Right. And as you mentioned, speaking of, of um, ethical and social responsibilities, I th you mentioned compliance as, as being a huge part of that. And listen, these compliance regulations are literally sets of rules that a defense contractor must follow. So if you're not compliant, you're not following those rules, which doesn't get you off to a good start ethically, right? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll contrast that with how, you know, some other nations handle this situation. So if you're in, in Russia, all right, and you're doing something on behalf of the Department of Defense, what happens is, you know, it's, it's a communist country, essentially. So you know, I get that they've got that democratic process, but what happens is the minute that you start supplying defense products, the government comes into your business and they essentially forcibly implement cybersecurity measures. It's not a choice. You don't get to choose what firewall vendor you're using. You don't get to choose what your own uh, Internet security settings are. The government walks in the second you've got a contract or subcontract work with them and they enforce that security. Another thing that, you know, again, both Russia and China and others have, North Korea is another great example, is they have a firewall that essentially blocks foreign traffic. You can't just go to any website around the world like we can in America, right? In America, we're a free country. We have those freedoms and enjoy those freedoms. But as they say, with freedom comes great responsibility. And so we have ethical requirements to adequately protect ourselves if we're going to continue to allow that level of freedom when it comes to handling defense defense related information. So again, a lot of people sort of don't understand that, you know, if you're in a foreign country, this isn't a choice. Uh, in America, I think, you know, another aspect of this is we're incredibly, incredibly fortunate. We've got amazing thought leaders. We have amazing professionals in government agencies like DARS and NARA. Uh, and NIST that come up with these standards, they vet them. These are industry lifetime professionals that have joined up with the government to do better in the world and to provide this critical information about how these attacks happen and how we can protect the critical private businesses that make up our defense supply chain. So one, I think it's incredibly fortunate that we have this level of freedom, but 
with great freedom does come great responsibility. And that responsibility falls on a moral and ethical responsibility of the defense contractor, you know, and I think there's another, there's another sort of challenge that goes along with this. And we've seen this across hundreds of clients, you know, a lot of times defense work is not a hundred percent of a, of a company's business. You know, it might be like 2% or 3%. And I have, I've heard and experienced numerous companies who go, well, you know, we have this contractual obligation to do this thing, right? To be compliant with DFARS, NIST, and, and ultimately CMMC. And we have this one defense project or this defense project that really makes up like one or 2% of our revenue. And they look at this as a cost benefit scenario. And in my opinion, I think that's ethically wrong. It's morally wrong because this is not cost benefit scenario. You're being trusted. You're being told up front that you're going to be trusted with defense information. You may not know what it is, but it's there. It's required as a part of uh, doing the work that you're doing for, you know, whoever your client is. Maybe it's a prime. Maybe it's, you know, the DOD. Maybe it's a prime that doesn't want you to know it's defense work, but yet they're making you sign that flow down. Right. Uh, ultimately, looking at this as a cost benefit scenario is wrong. Don't take on the work. Uh, you know, in, in all seriousness, just don't take that work on if you're not willing to honor the contract that you're signing or the questionnaire that you're answering saying that you will be compliant. Because then when you say, well, you know, look, it's only a $10,000 project and it's going to cost us $50,000 to get compliant. Well, hey, I get the dollars and cents of that, but that doesn't matter. That's not the contract that you sign. You have to factor these expenses in. And frankly, um, there are massive penalties far greater than the money you'll make off that contract and profit, uh, you know, that, that are affected here. And, and here's the truth for most subcontractors and supply chain people that are getting hit with these flowdowns, you have no idea what you're about to be, you know, what's about to be sent to you. So you talk about the morals and ethics of all of this, and, and I'll even talk about some morals and ethics from our own company's perspective there used to be a time when you couldn't touch us for less than say 15 to $20,000. Didn't matter what, what size your company was. You know, if you wanted help with all of this DFARS, NIST and CMMC stuff, there was a minimum ticket price of 15 to $20,000 just to walk in the door and talk with us uh, and, and get help with this. And, you know, we started getting phone calls from smaller businesses and we were kind of honestly shocked at how many small to mid-sized businesses there were in defense. You know, I guess, your perception on the outside is, hey, it's all a bunch of Lockheed Martins and Raytheons and big giant mega companies doing all these multi-multi-million dollar defense contracts. Yeah. And it's like, that's not really how it works. In fact, the United States government mandates that something like 25% of defense revenue goes to small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we took that information and, and after so many sort of conversations that our sales teams had uh, with prospective clients, we said, you know, we've got to change the way that we operate. You know, and and so that's when we brought in scalability to our solutions. And we said, hey, look, if you're a one person business, we need a price point that you can afford. I don't want these small micro businesses to have to decide between making payroll or in worst case scenario, some of the solopreneur businesses out there, one person businesses, whether they get to eat, you know, eat that month, right? Like if they get to pay themselves or get compliant, I don't think anybody should have to make a decision like that. And so from a moral and ethical perspective, you know what, we scaled our prices so that if you're a one person company, you know what, it's not a lot of money to work with us. You know, if you're a 20 person company, 
you should easily be able to afford our services without breaking a sweat or not being able to profit off of your defense work. And you know what, if you're a 50,000, 100,000 person company, we work with those all the time. Uh, you know what, the good news is, is that we're still very, very cost effective at scale uh, when we go to work with larger companies. And, and I'll tell you, you know, originally that wasn't really our perception. That wasn't really kind of where we were headed with all of this, you know, compliance work, but we discovered what the market needed. And we decided that, you know what, I think profit can take a slight back seat in lieu of doing the right thing for, frankly, you know, if you really believe it, you know, our society, right, for America. And so I think that's a, a huge point. You know, if we're willing to take a, you know, put profit in the back seat to protect our country, you know, we think these defense contractors should, should be able to do the same thing. Um, yes, it does cost some money, but at the same time, um, you know what, you're getting paid. Like you're, you're not having this obligation put upon you for nothing. It's actually to protect you. As a defense contractor, you wind up as a target. So um, you know, hopefully that answers that question. But yeah, you know, ultimately there's a there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there when it comes to morals and ethics for sure. For sure. Um, you know, defense contractors are crucial to the protection of national interest, but sometimes when people hear the word defense, it can raise eyebrows when you hear the defense contractor on the news. It can it can make people a little bit nervous. So so that that's why we're here discussing ethics today in an effort to shed light on on the measures that are taken by those contractors to ensure things are done right in the defense industry. So in an ever evolving world, what emerging ethical considerations should defense contractors be aware of and prepared to address? Yeah, I think I think that's a very interesting question. Well, I think, the you know, that question um, really, you know, makes me think of CMMC, right? So the, the cyber uh, cyber maturity model certification frameworks, uh, you know, again, we had a moral and ethical problem. Um, defense contractors didn't understand or felt the cost was too high or insert excuse here, but they didn't know about it. Um, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They continued getting hacked and attacked and our top secret, you know, and even not so top secret, our controlled unclassified information continues to leak out. It's still a problem today. And so, you know, what if, what's evolving is that the government has essentially said, uh, they did an inspector general survey and report. They said, look, people don't understand this. They're not getting it. And they're just deciding that it's self-attestation and they're checking the box and they have no idea what they're doing when they do that. So we're going to have to implement a system where rather than trust people, you know, self-attestation, instead, we're going to have to actually send assessors in to verify, right? The old trust, but verify thing, where if your contract, you know, has one of these CMMC level two requirements, which most defense, defense contracts ultimately will, then you will have to have someone go in and assess your company and make sure you have the right cybersecurity in place, uh, you know, more or less sort of taking away your ability to choose and taking away your ability to do it your way, which is, you know, for some companies, that's a, that actually increases the burden. So, um, it, what's the alternative though, right? So we talk about what's the alternative. Well, the alternative is getting sued. So if you look back towards 2019 and you look at what this problem really is, it's actually a contractual obligation problem. You're contractually obligating yourself to being compliant when you answer those questionnaires. Then when you, when you, when they find out that you're not compliant through an audit, you know, random audits or whatever it may be, then you've basically breached a contract. Then it goes to the legal system. And, you know, it escalates so quickly 
And I think another issue is that, you know, defense contractors and look, this conversation is all about morals and ethics, but I think they're just not aware of like how severe and how quickly things can deteriorate because the minute that DCMA or the defense contract management agency looks down the supply chain and goes, Hey, look, we got information that was leaked from somebody who's in the supply chain that had a copy of these plans or a report or whatever it may be. They freeze the entire contract until they can plug the hole and find the leak. So now you're not just affecting your own company. You may be freezing that entire project for you, every other subcontractor, uh, the primes. Um, and the average time that we've heard that projects get put on hold while they figure those kinds of things out is like nine months. So imagine going without a paycheck or worse, you just found out that you have to go without a paycheck for nine months while they sort out some other problem that isn't even related to your company. It's related to some company two steps down the supply chain uh, you know, and, and they didn't, they just checked the box, right. Instead of doing the right thing. So, you know, I think, I think that defense companies in general really need to take a long, hard look at this. You know, I'll, I'll share with you that ITAR has been around since 1976. Uh, ITAR violations are considered so severe. You can just straight up go to jail. It's one of the only places I've ever seen where you actually have a crossover of the personal versus business line, right? So yeah, you might be operating as an LLC, but if you are, if, 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 it, if an ITAR violation is traced down to an individual person, they will go arrest that person and put them in jail. Um, and, and I frankly see this whole cybersecurity thing going the exact same way. There's even talks about in CMMC 2.0, having to forcibly either make a CEO or some you know managing member of the company sign off that they acknowledge that they are meeting these requirements, moving more in the direction of where ITAR has been for 30 years, 40 years plus, uh, in, in potentially maybe even making the move towards it being a criminal offense to um, you know, make it so that ultimately, if you're in violation of these rules, you're just simply unable to continue participating in defense work. So I think there's a lot surrounding the morals and ethics of this, but most importantly, I think it is just there needs to be a realization that the window for self-attestation and adoption and understanding is you know, basically just about over. I think the next tier of this is going to be the trust but verify phase, and then I think it'll move to an outright punish phase. Um, there are about $5 billion worth of false claim settlements as of, I think, 2021. I don't know if the 22 numbers are out yet. Um, but, you know, think about that $5.6 billion worth of actual settlements, not even court cases, but settlements that all lead back to false claims, people just saying they're compliant when they're not. Um, it's pretty frightening stuff. Mm. You know, when I think about ethical dilemmas and ethical responsibilities in this space, the first thing that comes to mind uh, is whenever I see tanks or planes or other defense commodities in other countries that that look suspiciously like the same commodities here on American soil. So that that um, obviously creates quite an ethical dilemma. And and you mentioned you answered part of this question just a minute ago. But given that example and given some of the things you've already said, what are potential consequences for defense contractors that fail to uphold ethical standards and how, how, how can those risks be mitigated? Great question. I think, I think the first consequence that nobody's really talking about is the reality of why this is here. 
So the reason why it's here is because the minute that you become a defense supplier, you're probably listed in a contract somewhere. You're probably listed on a website somewhere. And you're essentially probably able to be targeted by our enemy who is looking to poke holes in the supply chain. So the number one reason that's really here is because the minute that you enter the world of defense, you are targeted like you've never been targeted before. And if, if you have any doubt about that, you know, you can feel free to ask the IT guy about the firewall logs and how they're doing and what the potential attacks are. And if they've got a decent firewall, it should show a lot of that. They're, the attacks are constant. It's, they're constantly trying to penetrate networks and probe them and figure out what's going on. So, um, you know, I think that's the first thing to understand is that your company absolutely has a higher likelihood of being hacked and attacked just because you're now involved in defense work, all right? You literally are an enemy of the state for a lot of nations. Um, the second thing is, uh, again, the penalties and fines, right? $11,000 per incident. That's like every piece of CUI, every email, every PDF. Uh, again, it's kind of like HIPAA and medical records. For most companies, this isn't just one or two files that you're going to have, right? It's going to be hundreds, if not thousands. And so $11,000 fine per incident is very significant when you realize the scope of what's going to be included. Um, there's obviously, you know, the potential for having your contract canceled, which if you've ramped up to satisfy a contract and you've bought all your supplies and you've hired all your people to satisfy that contract, mm -hmm. uh, it's like having the carpet yanked out from under you. It's really brutal. I mean, just hit the pause button. We're done. And that's a frightening thing for so many, so many small to mid-sized business owners. They can't afford to have a project this big go wrong. You know, even if it's not a big project, you know, there's huge financial consequences to not getting it right. So, you know, then you kind of move into, you know, the uglier side of the penalties, which is the fact that, you know, this is a contractual penalty, right? So it's, it's a false claim penalty, which means lawyers get involved. Anytime lawyers get involved, I can guarantee you're going to wind up dealing with it for at least two years. Mm -hmm. Literally mandatory minimum, if you've got a problem, is going to be two years of dealing with this. How much productivity does that kill in your company? How much do you lose, not just financially, but mentally as an owner of one of these businesses or as a manager who's having to deal with the fallout from it? You know, then you've got the false claims penalty itself, which, you know, can lead to all kinds of really nasty directions. And then you've got this other sort of ugly truth, which is you can be barred from being, uh, you know, doing defense work again. And you know, for some companies that might not be a big deal, but for a lot of companies, I think that'd be a huge deal. It'd be literally a, a, a mega blow, if you will, to, um, you know, what, how they advertise themselves. There are a lot of companies out there that maybe they only do one or two percent of their work for defense, but they're very, very proud to call the U.S. Army or the U.S. Navy one of their clients. And it's a big piece of their credibility. Um, you know, there's just a lot to really unpack there and think about. And then, of course, there's the, the morals and ethics of the individuals involved. We know that a lot of the ways that um, companies are penalized is through uh, what they call whistleblower penalties. In other words, penalties that originate from a former employee who's maybe been fired or disgruntled going and getting an attorney and saying, hey, look, this company knew they had these obligations. They didn't meet the obligations and they decided that they would uh, sort of on purpose ignore them. And then, you know, all it takes is one of those claims and a little bit of substantiated evidence, uh, you know, which any whistleblower is going to have. And all of a sudden, you got a major problem because one lawyer can trigger off the entire United States Justice Department 
uh, essentially attacking you, right? And imagine being a small to mid-sized company with say under a thousand employees, mm. and you're now basically in a massive legal battle with the U.S. Department of Justice and its unlimited resources. Uh, and let me tell you what, it, they don't play by the rules. Uh, when they catch wind of something that's that's not going right, they're going to throw everything behind it because they don't want to lose. Uh, and, and frankly, they're just not resource limited. So there's no excuse for them to lose. So I think there's a lot to unpack there as far as, you know, look, obviously do the right thing, you know, get compliant. Um, I think here at, at On-Call Compliance Solutions, we've made such exhaustive, uh, you know, solutions and, um, you know, efforts to help give different pathways um, for people to get compliant at a cost-effective rate, uh, making it so that, you know, they don't have to even go figure out what solutions will make them compliant. I mean, we've really taken care of everything for them. Uh, ultimately, I think it's critical for people to realize money can't be the excuse anymore. Number one excuse why people don't get compliant is because of the cost. Well, why are, why are you in this position? It's because you're getting paid. That to me, I think in itself is, is a conundrum that shouldn't exist. I think people should just recognize the fact that you shouldn't get paid if you're not willing to go along for, you know, through the hoops uh, that you signed on for. You know, like you said, long story short, stay ethical or, or, or it'll cost you and not, and not just money. Um, so we're going to wrap things up in a similar way that we did last week. We're going to have a little fun here. So, so last week we talked about um, the Avengers and if you could, if, if, if you could let them handle your defense work. So this week I'm going to ask you, could I outsource or is it ethical to outsource my defense work to ninjas provided they wear camouflage pajamas? And could we bring in invisible tanks if they can't see us? Is that unethical? <laughs> That's a great question. I think there's probably about three parts that I need to unpack. Uh, one is, you know, can you outsource to uh, to ninjas? Hopefully I caught all of that. Well, uh, wouldn't that be a subcontractor like we talked yeah. about last week? Uh, the answer is absolutely you could as long as you got a written verification from them that they were compliant with the DFARS laws, NIST SP-800-171 and Obviously not right now, but in the future, you'll probably want to know if they're if they're up to a CMMC level two. Uh, but yeah, hey, look, if they're if they are compliant, um, you know, then absolutely no problem at all. Now, I will I will comment that ninjas are mostly probably perhaps Japanese in nature. Uh, I don't know how far outside of Japan ninjas really go. If you ask my uh, one of my six year olds, he'll tell you that Ninjago lives Ninjago lives everywhere. Uh, so. Mm -hmm. You know, again, the first thing you want to do is send out send out your own questionnaire and ask if they're compliant. Uh, another consideration for many defense contractors is ITAR compliance. So having a little fun with this, you know, probably about half the defense work that's out there does have some sort of ITAR restrictions. And so if the if the next question might be, hey, you know, is are are the ninjas uh, U.S. citizens and are they storing the data within the United States? Because of course, if not, you, we could not we could not outsource ITAR compliant work. Uh, but hey, for for DFARS and NIST compliance, no problem at all. Uh, I think we're think we're doing okay. And if if you have questions about the finite sort of lines there, we can certainly help with that. You know, feel free to give give on call a call. We've got a bunch of people who really understand this stuff very well. Uh, what was the rest of the question? The ninjas, and then if the rest of the question was, tank. could you could you outsource to ninjas provided they wear camouflage pajamas, and then could you also use invisible tanks if they can't see you? Is that unethical? <laughs> so, um, so, so, uh, the 
the camouflage pajamas piece, no problem at all. I don't believe there's any kind of dress code for defense contractors. So I think we're pretty clear there. The invisible tanks is is um, brings up a couple of topics. Number one is sanitizing information. Um, you know, as as a defense contractor, if you are flowing work down to a subcontractor such as a ninja, uh, the question is, does the ninja in the invisible tank actually know that the work they'll be performing is for the purposes of defense, or is that something that can be completely sanitized? Um, so if it can be sanitized, you know, we'd obviously want to know about the individual scenario, but there may be a way that we could flow the work down to them without them being aware in any way that it was defense related work. Uh, and you know, if the ninjas want to run around in invisible tanks, Hey, as far as I'm concerned, as long as they get the work done, Hey, who cares, right? As long as they're compliant, as long as they get the work done, I think most of us who do sub out work, uh, frankly, wish some of our subcontractors were invisible It would make life a whole lot easier and uh, maybe maybe even make it a little bit uh, uh, a little bit more exciting and easy to work with them. All right, that answers that. And that wraps up another great episode of Mission Compliance. We hope our discussion today has provided you with valuable insights, practical strategies, and inspiration to navigate the ever-evolving world of defense. We'd like to thank you again, Mike, for joining us and, and sharing your expertise and experiences with us. But the conversation doesn't end here. We encourage you to continue exploring these topics and connect with us via our social media channels. Share your thoughts, ask questions, and engage with fellow listeners by using the hashtag Mission Compliance Podcast. You can also visit our website at missioncompliancepodcast.com for show notes, transcripts, and bonus content. If you haven't already, don't forget to hit the, the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to be the first to know when new episodes are released. And we'd truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show. Your feedback helps us continue to bring you thought-provoking episodes and high-quality content. Join us again on the next episode of Mission Compliance as we delve further into the dynamic world of defense, security, and industry innovation. Until then, take care, stay informed, and make compliance your mission. Thanks, everybody.